Hi, I'm Victor. And I'm Allegra. And we want to welcome you to Simply Investing. We're two mates in our 20s who have learned a thing or two in our young careers. Definitely from making lots of mistakes. And our mission is to simplify investing and give you the knowledge and confidence to kickstart your investment journey. Before we start, a quick reminder that nothing we say is financial advice. Rather, for educational purposes only. We are not financial advisors and everybody should invest according to their own circumstances. Welcome back to another episode at Simply Investing. This time we're diving away from ETFs and into property as a different investment class. So first and foremost, I guess to really kick things off, I really want our audience here to distinguish between their home and what we would call an investment property. To me, property as an investment basically relies at buying at a lower price than what you would sell for, net of transaction costs, and hoping that your holding costs are less than the rental and other income throughout the life of holding the property. And um, I guess that's a really simple way to put it, but if, you know, the goal of investing in property is like the goal of investing in any other asset which is to make money and this is diametrically opposed to your house which is something that you want to take into lifestyle considerations at the end of the day it's where you're coming home after an 80 hour week (sighs) to spend with your kids and your family in the miso yeah i guess on this i mean and you everyone hears these terms thrown around you know io so investment only and you know investment property and owner occupier you know so i think It's really important when we talk about an investment property or property as an asset class, as an investment, um, there's, I personally think, different metrics or different decisions you have to make when purchasing an investment property versus if the property is your forever home. Yep, absolutely. So that's the very first distinction that I think um, we want all our viewers and listeners to, to understand. Um, yeah, so I saying? think, you know, just to clarify, when we talk about properties and investment class, we're talking purely from an investment side of things. We're yeah. not talking from when you're buying a forever home. So some of these concepts will probably apply, but there's certain things that would come into buying your forever home, like, you know, what location you've grown up in, whatever it is yeah. that you maybe wouldn't consider or don't need to consider when buying an investment. So yeah. we can do an episode on you know, purchasing your home and, you know, things to look at more broadly later down the track. But I think our listeners probably want to know how to purchase an investment property. Absolutely. So let's dive into property as an investment class then. Um, So ultimately, what is investing in property? Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many different types of property you can invest in. And Mm. that's probably what people don't understand. But most people will invest in residential. That's right. Um, and whether that's, you know, a unit, a townhouse, a freestanding home, whatever it may be, um, they're probably the three main types of residential property people look into. Um, but then, you know, there are so many different classes of residential or property that you can invest in. So, you know, depending on how much money you have, you could buy a block of units. You can buy a block, a block of land, um, and then yep. build on top of that. Yep. Um, you can buy industrial property. So, um, you know, you can buy a industrial warehouse, whatever it may be. Yep. Um, you can buy commercial property and then that goes down so many different roads as well. So you can buy, um, for example, retail commercial, whether it's a shop, um, or you can buy commercial in terms of an office space or, you know, obviously if you have a lot of money, you can buy an office building or yep. whatever it may be. There are so many different types of property that you can purchase. But I think for this episode of the podcast, commercial industrial we'll get into later. Let's focus purely on residential. residential. And to jump on that, I mean, I have no experience investing in anything but residential. And I think a lot of people wouldn't, but... To really get started on that space, if you had to rank the way property as a market is, I think a lot of people would be looking to onboard like you did when you were 18 yeah. in a in an apartment or a unit to begin with. Right. right? So I, I think, yeah, if we speak from, you know, people who are starting off investing in property, the cheapest probably type of residential property you can purchase would be a unit. 
In the metropolitan areas, definitely. Yes. I mean, you don't find units really in rural or No, and then I think regional. as well, when you when you start to go into regional, we'll talk about this in episode two, and it's kind of how you look at property and buying interstate. But yes. when you purchase, you know, in regional areas, so by regional, it's just anything that isn't in the Sydney metropolitan. Yep. For example, an example of a New South Wales regional could be, you know, a Maitland or even Byron Bay, right? Yep. So when we talk about kind of buying in those areas, although property may be cheaper and we'll speak to this, but if you're buying in those areas, you're probably looking at a property that is going to reward you with a higher rental return or have better yield when it comes to rent. Absolutely. But in terms of capital growth and, you know, I know that regionals kind of did better over the COVID period. And that comes to that whole work from home concept, people wanting to move out of Sydney, get out of that rat race. but the growth that you would have outside of, you know, a pandemic event would be less than if you were to purchase in a capital city. Okay. Makes sense to me. Um, and I guess on that property rung then, on yep. a, or on the ladder, as they call it, um, you have your unit to begin with, and then you slowly move to a townhouse, yep. and then to a house with land Correct. Uh, from a residential perspective. But um, I guess in terms of property um, as an investment class, like I mentioned earlier, from a financial standpoint, because that's where that's where I live. Mm. Um, like I said, it's all about you know um, buying a property for less than what you're going to get when you sell it. Right. Otherwise, you lose money. Correct. Um, less all of the transaction costs, and there are going to be many, and I'm sure right. you can walk us through all the duties, levies, taxes. Yep. Um, you know, and and different types of properties have different levies on them so and i think another thing is and a massive thing when buying a property is your holding costs that's right end of the day that's something that you really need to look at because that will make or break how good of an investment that you know whatever property you purchase is i mean let's just talk from current interest rates it's quite easy or it's a lot easier to find a property that is you know, neutrally geared. So not positively, not negatively, or even positively geared. So for those of you that don't understand the whole gearing side of things, and we can go into this in detail, but for a property to be positively geared, it's basically that your interest repayments and all of your outgoing costs. So management fees, land, council taxes, and all the rest of it are covered and you're making additional money off the rent. So your rent say it's 400 a week, exceeds whatever your outgoings are, which say they're 300 rent. So you're positively geared $100. Yeah, on a weekly basis. Absolutely. So I think in the current market, it's a lot easier with current interest rates being so low to find a neutral or positively geared property. Yeah. But if interest rates do increase, that's something that you really need to be cautious of when purchasing property because your outgoings, such as your interest repayments, are a lot higher. Yeah. And 1% on an additional, let's say, million-dollar mortgage is, is going to be quite a large it's amount. a big hit, yeah. Spread over a couple of months. Definitely. Um, sorry, spread over a year, rather. It's, it's going to be, you know, an additional interest repayment that you have to factor in. And are you going to be able to increase rents as much? And there's all these kind of, you know, issues with tenancy and and nightmares you know obviously the pandemic um you can see that a lot of you know apartment house prices have all skyrocketed yeah um, you know and the rents have dropped you know because no one's coming into the country to rent because everyone wants to buy because interest rates are so low so there's a whole bunch of nuance associated with property investment and this is what makes it a lot more of a difficult investment class uh in the way that you have to do your own research more than you would, um, let's say you just click a few buttons and you've got yourself an ETF, right? Right. But with property, it you really have to go through the channels and have an extensive network and have people around you that can kind of guide you uh, to be able to achieve what you want to achieve. But to really keep things in a very simple way, the way to make money through property is to buy something, sell it for more, and then in between, when you're holding the property, not lose any money in that time. Um, and you can probably, I think as well, touch on the tax kind of side. Like if a property is negatively geared, you do have tax benefits from that. That's right. It offsets against your ordinary income and you Correct. receive 30 cents on the dollar or whatever your income tax rate is, depending on your earnings from a negative gearing perspective. And 
I mean, I negatively gear, which is something that's really helped me um, in terms of managing cash flows. But to be fair, um, the gearing aspect isn't as great um, if your property's a little older um, right. or if you've got an older, older kind of house. Um, it's not as easy. You oh, know, so you don't get the depreciation. Yeah, it's mainly the depreciation benefit that comes with negative gearing that you want to use. But we'll touch on all of that later. So. I know. I feel like there's so much to kind of touch on when it comes to property. But let's keep episode one or Super part one simple. really simple. Um, and let's kind of talk about how you get started. Yeah. Because I think that that's the biggest or one of the most daunting things when it comes to property is that there's so much information. But... If we go through this step by step, it's actually a lot easier than most people would think. Yeah, so let's jump straight into it then. Um, I guess for a first home buyer, um, whether it's an apartment, unit, anything, um, an investment place, um, how do you invest or how do you get started? What are the legitimate steps um, to kind of do that? Now, for me, I think from a buy side perspective, and I went through this process not long ago, the first thing to do um, is to always... I said again, from a buy side perspective, find something you want to buy. Right. Um, so I'm going to jump in there and say, right before you do that, um, I think something that is so important when purchasing property um, is obviously having your savings. But getting, if it's not pre-approval, going to a bank or broker and finding out how much you can borrow. And I know for you it was different because you purchased off the plan. Yes. So you had more time to you know increase income and all the rest of it. You weren't buying and needing to get a loan straight away right so you have okay. time to increase your income and all the rest of it to be able to afford the whatever amount loan amount you have on this property i went out <laughs> to share you're more than welcome to uh, share but it's a bit high but anyway um so yeah i think that the first thing when you get started you've got your savings speak to either your bank or your broker find out how much what's you the can difference borrow. between a bank and a broker yeah, so I guess a broker is independent to the bank. So it's someone that is on their own and they will reach out to several banks or several lenders yep. and find the best option when it comes to who to borrow from, rates and all the rest of it. Whereas if you go direct to, say, Commonwealth Bank, they'll give you a loan that is with Commonwealth Bank. Right, so almost like the broker is an intermediary um, between the banks and yourself. That's right. And they have relationships, don't they? With, with all of the banks. Yeah. And also not only all major or the major four, they also have relationships with non-APRA banks, which we'll get into as well. So banks such as, you know, Pepper Money and all the rest of it that may be easier to borrow with because they aren't governed by or governed as much by so you're telling our viewers to go to a loan shark. Not a loan shark. I actually <laughs> have loans with Pepper myself, so... Um, yeah, so getting started, find yourself a broker or go to yeah, direct to a no, bank. No, absolutely. Find out how much you can borrow based on your income and the savings you have. Yeah. What can you purchase for and what can you borrow? Yeah. So just to jump in quickly, Allegra, if I had a really large amount of savings because yeah. I inherited, let's say, money from mummy and daddy mm. and I've got a million dollars sitting in the bank yeah. and I want to buy something for, let's say, 1.5 but my income's only 10000 a year, will I be able to borrow that additional? Well, likely no, because although you've got the million-dollar deposit on a $10,000 income per year, it's highly unlikely you'd be able to borrow 500000 from the bank. Exactly, and that was kind of the point I wanted you to drive home. It's not about the equity that you have when it comes to property. It's all about your income serviceability. Right. And I actually learned a little bit about how uh, from my broker, actually, how banks calculate how much an individual is able to borrow. And I think there's a stress ratio that they use right. where if you're over and above, let's say your monthly paycheck, um, you know, if it's over 60%, they'll say you're mortgage stressed and they won't lend you anymore based right. on the interest rates and things like that. So it is very important to your point to really figure out and think about how much you can borrow because there's no point looking at, you know, um, a million dollar house when you can only afford a 500 grand apartment. Right. And I find it really funny that, you know, on that point that you see so many property pages and stuff and they kind of go on, you know, you buy this and then you pull the equity and you buy that. For our listeners, I mean, it's easy to do, but you will get to a point where your borrowing capacity is capped. That's right. And that's, for example, why for my fourth purchase, I went with a pepper money because I was able to borrow more money and purchase. But now... 
end of the day, you still need to have or increase your income in order to borrow more money from the banks. Yep. That's exactly right. And I think that's something that kind of hits home for me because I'm pretty limited at the moment if I wanted to access more debt um, based on my current income levels. Hopefully my boss is hearing this. (laughs) But, you know, I think if you don't increase your income at a quick enough rate, it is quite difficult to borrow more money. But let's just quickly, you know, we're getting pretty deep into it. Let's just strip it back. So, you know. Go to your broker or your bank. You've sat down. You've done the numbers. So things I look for is basically assets versus liabilities. So, you know, what assets do you have? Do you own a car? Do you own shares? You know, all the rest of it. And then liabilities, do you have hex debt, things like that? And then they'll also look at your lifestyle. Your lifestyle. So what do you earn and what do you spend? What are your costs of living and what are you earning? They'll look at things like, you know, your savings account, see your outgoings versus your ingoings. Mm. They'll ask for paychecks from your work just to make sure and verify that you do have an income um, and, you know, things like that. So yep. the ba- banks basically want to understand how much can this person afford to repay? And it's worth noting that they don't base that off the interest rate that they give you. So they don't base that borrowing capacity off a 3% interest rate. They base it off, I think it's roughly 7%. So right. they want to know that if Victor's borrowing a million dollars from the bank at a 3% interest rate, if that rate goes up to 7%, can you still afford it? Yep. So they kind of do a bit of a stress test. It's a buffer. Yeah. And I guess that's a good thing about our banks is that they're highly regulated by by the um, Prudential Regulatory Authority, APRA. And I think there are quite... I say this with a grain of salt because we've just had a big royal commission into banks. Right. But overall, I think compared to other countries, let's say like the US, yeah. our banks are generally more cleaner yeah, and above I mean, board in terms of responsible lending. Um, I mean, you look at the subprime mortgage crisis that originated in the US... I think we're levels above that in terms of regulatory and we have bank reserve ratios. I actually took a subject on banking. So I kind of know the ins and outs of exactly how bank works and makes money um, from that perspective. And there are a lot of, you know, um, you know, capital ratios that they need to manage and things like that. But anyway, I'm going on a tangent. (laughs) So the bank basically says, okay, hey, Victor, um, I'm going to lend you, sorry, um, $700,000. Yeah. So they'll say to you, we're going to lend you, say, a loan of $700,000. Um, and then you also got to consider how much deposit you require. So whether that's five to 10 for first home buyers or a lot of banks now will ask for 20% on properties. Um, but if we're talking from the perspective of first home buyer, they'll say, okay, you've got a loan of say, let's say 500,000 with savings of say 50,000. So your max borrowing is 550,000. Yep. Right. And that you need to remember that that doesn't take into account solicitor's fees. Yep. Um, which is for the contract Broker's review. Fees. Brokers are actually paid by the bank, luckily. So, oh, really? Yeah. So when it comes to the broker's fees, it's, you know, not payable by yourself. Yeah. Um, so it's mostly just, you know, solicitor's fees. And then if it is an investment, you need to take into account that you might not have tenants straight away. Yep. And you also have to pay a letting fee to your managing agent. But we'll yep. get into that later at yep. one of the later steps. Yeah, absolutely. So you've gone to your bank, you've you've worked out initial numbers, you've got pre-approval. So now this is really important. You've got a budget that you can purchase with. So there's no point, and this is back to my point, there's no point looking at properties for a million dollars if you can only afford to buy for 800000 Yep. So now that you've got, say, this 550 k in mind, it's then a matter of what can I purchase for 550000 Yeah, like a one-better. Yeah, a one-better apartment yeah. a bit further out from Sydney CBD or, you know, if you're not a first home buyer, can I purchase interstate? So, yeah. you know, Brisbane, South Australia, wherever it may be. Why, um, like you just spoke about, if you're not a first home buyer... Why does that matter? Because with interstate purchase, right? So, as a first home buyer, obviously the requirement when you purchase is that it's owner occupied, or the purpose of buying it is for you to live in. So, for the first six months, you I need to that. live in that property, and right. you need to prove that you are residing in that property. So, if you're a first home buyer and you live in Sydney and you've purchased in Brisbane, unless right. you're going to move to Brisbane, how do you prove that you're actually okay, residing that in that makes property? Sense. That makes sense. Okay, I didn't think of it like that. So you're saying, and let's cater to our first home buyers out there yeah. or, or people that are right. saving up to buy a place. Um, you know, even if it's an investment property, if it's a first home, then you do have to live in it for six months. That's or right. the alternative is to leave it empty 
Um, no. You can't even you do must, that? You must, yeah. No, you have to live in it for six months. Okay. Well, it didn't right. apply to me because I moved you in. You lived but in, I'm yeah. saying, <laughs> yeah. now I know you have to move in for six months. And then um, what's next? So, yeah. So, it's worth noting for first-home buyers, um, you do get a $10,000 grant from the New South Wales government. If it's a new purchase, so say off the plan or a new home, that is below the value of 600000 Okay. I want to stress this because I think if you buy, for example, for a property for 1.6 and you're a first home buyer, you're above the threshold. So you don't get that grant. So you're saying you almost want to use that up and buy a smaller or like a cheaper property to begin with? If you want to use that grant. And with that grant, you get the $10,000. And stamp duty exemption. Stamp duty exemption. And you can generally with the banks purchase with a 5 to 10% deposit. Ah, oh, where was I? I know. What was I doing back then? Oh, goodness. Um, I didn't get that. That's disappointing. Yeah. I didn't get the 10 Gs. Nor did, did I get... You? No, I didn't. And I had to pay stamp too. Why is that? Well, my place was a bit higher than 600. Oh, right. Yeah. So I had a reduced stamp. Okay. And that was my next point. So if you purchase for, I think, below 800,000... That's right. Your stamp duty is is capped. So, I mean, you get... A it's still bit of a high. Ret- I paid like high. 25 stamp. Right. But it could be more. Yeah. I think so, I you pay a percentage of what you would have paid if you purchased the home as a non-first home. So, if your stamp duty, say, 10,000, let's say you buy for 700,000, they'll, you know, do like... How would you say that? I don't know. Just... Cap it at a certain rate. So, say you pay yeah. 5% of... You know, or 50% of that amount. So, say your stamp duty is 5000 instead of 10000 Yeah. So, basically, you're saying that it's a, you know, reducing balance. Right. In terms of the stamp duty tax. But I was thinking about this then. If you're not a first-home buyer, if, you're not, if you don't have access to any of these, right. you know, schemes and benefits, let's say you make 100 Gs from property. Yeah. After transaction costs, and if you're not positively gearing, and if you're, you know, losing a bit every single year... Even if your capital is appreciated, you don't make that much money, do you? No, you don't. So that's, that's my thing. next point is that why purchasing right is so important because stamp duty is not cheap. I mean, I just purchased for, I think the value was 830, mm. a freestanding house. My stamp duty was like 35 grand. Yeah, it's not cheap at all. And then you no. have to factor in the land tax as well and other things right? like that. Like with property, if you're not gaining maybe... You know, a couple of hundred grand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In terms like, but I mean, that's on the point that I think investment strategy is such a big piece yeah, of that. Puzzle. It's really important. 100%. It's so important. Yeah. You need to know why you're purchasing, how long you're going to hold for, because I mean, there's no point buying a house and holding it for two years as an investment, and then you sell it. You won't make money. You probably lose money with the amount you're paying in stamp duty and fees and all the rest of it. Yeah, exactly. It's probably the longest. Yeah, game. I'm talking you know, in terms of an investment classes. class if you're holding property. Um, but okay, once that's all done, you've got the pre approval, you've got the yep. loan set, and let's say you found a really nice one better in Bankstown. Yeah. Oh, God. What do you do there? So you've found a nice one better, say, you Anywhere. Know, or whatever it is. Yep. Maybe it's, you know, a home further it's just out within west your, to town house. It's within, within your, your budget, budget, right? Yeah. So your next step, you've gone to the property inspections, you'll make an offer on that property. Um, and let's say, you know, the offer is accepted. Yep. You'll engage a solicitor in order to do a contract review. And when you make that offer, it needs to be conditional. So you don't make, making an unconditional offer on a property is risky. I've done it before. So we'll talk about it later. What does that mean? So basically you're purchasing the property, you're putting down your deposit and it doesn't matter if the roof falls off the property your offer is unconditional. So no, right. no condition will change that property. So it's not subject to lending. It's not subject to building and pest and it's not subject to contract review. Okay. So you're taking on all of the unknown risks to purchase that property. Yep. Okay. Makes sense. So you'll, you'll speak to your solicitor about this, but generally it's, you know, subject to, I think, finance approval, contract review and building and pest. So why would you make an unconditional We'll get into this because I did that for my third. But if you go to, say, for example, you're an, like an auction offer is unconditional. So you need to have everything in place prior to offering it at an auction. auction. But I did it when I purchased interstate because I think I was up. It was best and final offers. I was up probably against like eight other purchasers. And I knew that if I put conditions into my offer, I wouldn't get the property. So I just, you know, 
YOLO'd it. I YOLO'd it and took that risk. But I knew that, you know, someone had lived there, the previous owners, for 30 years. Um, other people had done a building in Pest and all the rest of it. So the risk that I took on was lower than if I, you know. Yep, makes sense. Right? So yep. generally, you'll engage a solicitor, you'll engage someone to do a building in Pest report. And if the contract review and the building in Pest checks out, you'll then, you know, proceed to getting a final mortgage approval. So you're taking your pre-approval with the bank and you're locking in a loan and you're getting that final approval. So yep. you've got your loan sorted. Um, and then after the settlement period, everything checks out. Um, you can, you know, change how many days settlement is. Um, some people like a longer, some people like a shorter settlement. And all of that we'll talk about it can be used to actually negotiate a purchase. Yep. Um, so once, you know, your settlement period's over, you get to the settlement day, you lock in your loan, you finalize everything with the banks, um, and then basically you're a property owner. Yep, absolutely. Um, so to all of our viewers that are still listening, we've dropped a lot of Content. information on you. Um, why don't we just sum it up quickly in six steps, right? right? How we would, you know, go through investing in property. So yep. um, I'll do three and you can do three. The first step would be, well, not even before pre-approval, but to get savings. You need yeah, to have right. savings to invest in property. And that is probably going to be the hardest part because property prices are so high now. If you don't have, honestly, at least $100,000, you could do it for less and there are, and, and you can do it with the first home buyers, maybe even $50,000, but that's not easy to come by. Yeah. Some. yeah it, I, agree. It, I mean, it's not, you know, as a young person, I didn't see you know, five digit savings until I was like an adult, like right? at, at 18, 19, 20, 21. So you have that as your first step. And then the next step is to consult with your bank uh, or a broker to check how much you can borrow. So you've got your savings um, so far, you know, in your bank, you've got this much. And then now you need to talk with um, a banker or a broker to see, you know, what your borrowing power is. Like we mentioned, there's no point yep. looking at million dollar houses if you can only borrow 500,000 from yep. the bank. Next, what you want to do is hopefully um, at that time ob obtain your pre-approval, which means that the bank is okaying that five hundred thousand yeah. uh, dollars for you to borrow. And you can at the same time search for a property um, that you know during this time to kind of look at, um, and hopefully you'll find the right one because now you have your budget and your finances all set. Yep. So then, I guess once you found the property, you make an offer. The offer is accepted. You then need to engage a solicitor for the contract review. And then also get a building and pest. And this is obviously for an existing home. But if it's off the plan, you don't need to do the building and pest. Yep. Um, so then, you know, you get the building and pest done. All checks out. Um, and then you go to settlement of the loan and final loan or mortgage approval. Yep. It's worth noting that if you do purchase off the plan, which my first purchase and your first purchase was off the plan. That's right. The process for settlement is slightly different in the way that when you purchase the property, 10% goes down. Yes, that's right. Some developers will allow 5%. And then at settlement of the loan, so when the building has been completed, that's when you put down your final 5 or 10% of the loan. That's right. Settlement is similar, except rather than doing a building in pest inspection, you do a pre-settlement inspection. Yep. Basically, for our listeners, an inspection where you go through the apartment and list out any defects, which the builder will then fix. The good old PSI. The good old PSI. And then once you've purchased and you've got your property and, you know, I guess everything's all done from a, yeah. from a you know, deed transfer perspective and everything's gone to your name and you've, you basically, you're a now property owner. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, the last part is to then rent it out. Yes. And I mean... I think this is something I'll do a very detailed. I can even give you guys some horror stories. Some, I'm sure there are many. Tenants I, are never personal easy. Horror stories. Yeah. I've had some shockers. Tenants are never easy to like, well, good tenants are never easy to come by. Right. So that's kind of the last step because yes, with a property and with all investments, there's the asset appreciation aspect where the house or unit will go up in price or down in price. But there's also hopefully... Um, with other classes, like with an ETF or a share, you get a dividend, which we mentioned in a previous episode is an income that you receive paid out of net profits. With property, it's rental. Yeah. Right. So you hopefully want to be able to grab some rental income um, yeah. and then that will determine your gearing on the property and 
I guess, happy days. Right. And I think a big thing and people don't realize is, you know, people think that property is very low risk. It is low risk if it's managed well. So I think this applies definitely when you're buying in, say, rural New South Wales, regional New South Wales, or even interstate. Yep. Your property manager can make or break the success of your property performance. Okay. Um, so yeah, the final step is engaging a property manager, talk to people in the area, find out, review, see who's good. Um, and then they'll rent the property out for you. And basically then you just kind of need to actively just make sure that you understand rents coming in and they'll send you the statements. But you know, once it's rented out, that's when you can kind of sit back a bit and enjoy, you know, being a property purchaser or owner. Being a property tycoon. Yeah. So that was like a really, really high level, even though we've waffled on for half an hour um, (laughs) introduction about property and how you would get started. Um, We'll definitely in future episodes, um, do a deep dive and you let us know um, at us, you know, simply investing podcasts and let us know what you would like, you know, more information about whether it's, you know, having a property manager, how to choose one, et cetera, or even just you know, where would you buy a property? What would you look for? Is yeah. it the train station that's important? Is it the schools, etc.? Let us know what you would like to hear. And I think on that as well, people purchase property for different reasons. Yeah. My the way that I've approached properties and asset class has changed so much since eighteen for purchasing off the plan to now being twenty six. Yeah. So I'd love to do an episode on, you know, purchasing for future development purposes. I mean I work in property development myself or you know, construction project management. Um, Or, you know, if you want to buy something for just more passive income or even interstate, I'd love to do, you know, different kind of episodes on that stuff based off what you all want to hear. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just like there's an ETF for everyone's needs, there's a property for everyone's needs. So I want to kind of touch base now on something a bit different. Now, to keep things at a very high level on this first episode, we want to talk really um, about the risks yeah. and also the benefits of investing in property because it is a very different asset class, right. not like um, you know equities and shares or even digital currencies. So I'll kick us off. I think for me with property, the main benefit is really um, a reduced volatility and quote unquote property being more of a stable asset, having stable growth, um, etc. Now, I've got a bit of a qualm to pick with this one. I think it's more of shadow volatility. Um, that's how I think of it because you're unable to constantly value your property. Um, linking back to The Intelligent Investor, which is a book that is quite famous now, um, that Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham, etc., The Value Investing Camp. Chapter 8, you have Mr. Market, right? So you're not able to get a read on your property value every single day of the week. Well, markets open five days a week, but the digital asset market, let's say a Bitcoin, is always trading. Yeah. So I'm saying with the valuation of your property, you're not really sure how it's performing on a very day-to-day basis. And hence, you know, you can see people holding it for two, three, five, even a longer term. And they're saying, common saying is property doubles in yeah. every 10 to 15 years. I think- you know, so it's kind of, for me, it's more of a, more of a shadow volatility aspect. But there is this, I wouldn't say myth, but a lot of people see investing in property as a very safe way to invest. Yeah. No, that's um, true. Yeah. So that's kind of how I see it. Um, I also think with property as well, another major benefit and the second main benefit I would say is kind of that it's an access to safe quote unquote leverage. Now we can do a whole episode on leverage in the future, whether you're long options, etc., or, you know, using 2050 X leverage in the market um, and getting margin called. But that to me is unsafe leverage. Whereas this is you know, you have a mortgage with the bank because you're backing that with an asset, which is your house. You're accessing lower interest rates compared to a personal loan or any other type of loan. And your return on your cash investment is going to be much higher because let's say, for example, you're putting 200K down as a deposit um, and you're using the bank's money, the other 800,000 to kind of purchase a $1 million asset, which then, you know, you're accessing leverage so that you're your asset can move up and down 
in a more volatile manner. And if it goes to the upside, then great. If it doubles to 2 million, then well, you've made, better. let's say you've made that 1 million on a 200K investment, you're 5X, yeah. right? So that's kind of the, another way I see it. And there's, you know, really bad ways to use leverage. You can wipe yourself out as a day trader if you're trading with, you know, money you don't have. That's to me unsafe leverage. But I think with a property, that's a really, really main benefit to have. Well, you're able to use the bank's money to invest um, because you probably don't have, you know. That money yourself. Yeah, all of that money yourself. So those are kind of the main benefits that I see with property. Have I missed any? No, and I think, you know, when we get to that as well is kind of great point with the whole leverage piece as well. On top of that, if your property does increase in value and, you know, if you can get the obviously borrowing capacity, you know, pulling equity. So not even having the cash for my second and third purchases. I just use pretty much all equity. So pulled the increased value from my initial purchase and use that as my loan to service my second and third investments. Yep. So I know you can borrow money to buy stocks from the bank and all the rest of it. In my eyes, that's extremely high risk. Yes. But, you know, name another safe asset class where you can pretty much completely borrow the bank's money to purchase a property. Absolutely. And I think that's like we mentioned one of the main benefits of investing in property. But I think there's also a flip side to the coin where if you lose your job and your income source dries up um, and you're unable to make your mortgage repayments, if you're over leveraged in such a way where you've kept drawing on equity and you have three or four different mortgages now, um, the thing with that is the bank and the reason why the bank is so happy to lend you money on equity is if you can't make your mortgage repayments, all they're going to do is foreclose on your property and you know liquidate it to retire the debt. Yeah, so I mean that's that's something I guess when it comes to property, if you do lose a job, you know, touch wood, uh, and you're no longer able to afford afford the repayments, you're kind of backed into a corner where your only real option is to sell. That's right, unless you find another job. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think so, that's a yeah. probably that's probably the more the logical. easiest solution. But I mean, yeah. for some people, you know, yeah, you're right. It could be other circumstances that's right. as to why you can no longer work. Yes, um, and that's probably the one thing that, when it comes to property, it's not like a stock that it's a lot easier to sell. For example, a portion of a stock or whatever. If you're forced to sell a whole property, yeah, you've just you know got Where to you pray that as well. Well, yeah, and you've got to pray that the markets not in you know a period where growth is plateaued or the market has dropped slightly because then you're forced to sell at a loss yeah and a fire sale especially when i don't know if you probably have more experience with this yeah. but you can tell when someone's desperate to sell yeah you and can, you can and easily... you can use that to your advantage if you know that someone's you know having mortgage issues sounds horrible but that will be a negotiating strategy or something you you know play on their emotions when making an offer on a property yeah, you're such a bad person, Allegra. I know. Like when I search properties to buy, I search keywords like deceased estate. Um, oh, goodness. Divorcee. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, you've got to be smart when purchasing property and also plan for the worst. Because, yes. you know, your whole life can change in six months. Yep. There's certain things you can't plan for. So, just make sure that you've always got some sort of a buffer or backup plan. 100%. And, you know... While it is a benefit to leverage up and, you know, um, draw down on equity and, you know, to continue leveraging yourself, we just mentioned that there is that big risk as well. And yeah. from a bank's perspective, like I said, the reason they're so happy to keep lending you money is they'll just grab your property and sell it. Yeah, if you I can't, agree. If you can't make the mortgage repayments over however many months or extend the period of time I it agree. is. So that's definitely a risk. Um, I think on that as well, another risk and people talk about this a lot when they talk about off the plan purchases is that yeah when you buy off the plan what people don't realize is that you're not buying a property that's you know say valued at six hundred thousand dollars today in its market value you're buying a property and generally it's priced at what they think the property will be worth at settlement whether that's a year or two years away yep so my biggest thing is before you settle generally on a property you get a bank valuation completed and you just need to make sure that for whatever you've purchased for, you get a valuation for that value. Because otherwise, if you say you buy for 500,000 and the bank's value it at 400,000, okay, you need to come up with that $100,000 difference at settlement. Right. So you just need to make sure when you're buying things like off the plan, 
um, or just purchasing generally in a really hot market that you're not overpaying for a property that you're not going to get the valuation for. Yeah, so timing um, is really important when it comes to purchasing. I just think that, you know, especially when you buy at auction, people get so emotional. Yeah. Make sure that you do your research, you know, on surrounding houses, similar recently sold properties. Make sure when you're buying something, you know what it's worth and you're not overpaying for it. A hundred percent. I think that's a really, really good point. And as well, I don't think we've touched on this yet, but another risk when we're talking about, you know, off the plan, which is what you were mentioning with the valuation at settlement is, is what if your developer just sucks, you know, and the building's mm. not built right? Well, let's look at Opal Tower for an example. That's what I'm saying. Right? Sydney so, Olympic Park, right? And there's a lot of cases like in Melbourne as well with like water leakage, all this kind of stuff. I'm sure it's everywhere. Right. But so I think the issue with that's this- That's a really- Yeah, it's a huge risky. risk. So my biggest thing if you're buying off the plan is always look into the developer and also the contractor's track record. Yeah. There's so much online that you can look at to see if a builder's got a good reputation. But yep. I do feel for the people at Opal Tower because they're now, you know, people are holding an asset that realistically is not worth much. I think recently they even um, classified Opal Tower is it's no longer habitable. So I think they're now... You what happened to it? Do you know? Yeah, I do actually know. So the contractor, I won't drop names, actually came into my previous company and did a bit of a talk on what went wrong. So pretty much the structural engineer, when they were doing the concrete pours of certain columns, was meant to come in um, and basically sign off the pour, the concrete pour. So basically certify that the concrete strength they were using was strong enough or appropriate for the building. Okay. Something went wrong and the concrete that was poured was not the appropriate strength. So it was weaker than what it was meant to be. Right. So that's what led to the cracking. The concrete column was not poured properly and not strong enough to hold up the building load. That's so scary. It is. And I mean, I think they went in and they tried to fix it. And driving past Opal Tower, you could see the contractor trying to fix it. But I think now from what I've heard, it's at a point where they can't fix it. And the only option is to now knock sell, knock that down and rebuild and yeah. sell that land to another developer. But I mean, you've bought it a premium. Yes. Selling the land value back, you're not going to make your money on the apartment. No, you won't. So they're things to look at when buying off the plan. Yeah. Um, they're easily avoidable. I think if you just do your research on that. Contractors. Yeah, I think you can definitely avoid that. Another risk as well is, and we touched on this at the beginning of this section um, or this segment, is... In terms of property and the whole myth that property increases or doubles really every 10 to 15 years, I think it's really important to understand that property does not necessarily go up over the long term. It really depends on your individual circumstance, your holding costs, how much capital did you um, kind of push up front, um, did you you know purchase at too much of a premium, etc. I was reading this book. Um, it's by, I don't even know the guy now, but it's called From Zero to 130 Properties in 3.5 Years, which is a wow. bit of an interesting title. But in Did there... Did you buy 135 properties? I think so. Interesting. I'm not quite sure. I don't remember. But he says um, quite clearly, or the author says, you know, the truth is that, you know, although property values, they trend up over time, you know, it's a kind of chart that goes to the top right. Um, they are not increasing all of the time. So there are periods where prices are flat or declining. And, you know, if you're a capital growth focused investor, which means you're trying to buy a property cheaper than what you're going to sell it for, you won't be making any money during these times, right? Um, and he does a study on, you know, median house prices in all of the major capital cities in Australia over the last 29 years. And you can see that, you know, over the last 30 years, only, you know, 30% of the time, 30% of those years that they that they did increase. And yeah. property usually goes on this boom and bust cycle, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it goes does. up really quickly and then it plateaus or it, yeah, or or it dips. dips for, you know, a couple of years. So, you know, we're lucky we caught the boom. Yeah, I think it's worth noting as well, every single state and even, you know, different areas. So you've got metropolitan Sydney versus, say, rural Sydney. You know, there's so many different... Everyone just talks about, you know, the property cycle. But... Not every state follows the same growth and, you know, decline cycle. So, you know, maybe Sydney's on the boom and 
for example, Perth is recovering from a bust. Yeah. So I think as well, when you're buying interstate, it's good to understand, or, you know, if Sydney's declining, look at other options because there's so many out there and we'll talk about them. Yeah. And it comes back to that risk as well. You know, it doesn't necessarily go up all of the time. No. Um, but yeah, it also comes down and the risk is as well, if you've done your research wrong, you know, you could be purchasing the wrong property. Yeah, and I mean, I can speak to that. So you know, you're buying something that didn't go up in value. Yeah, and I you're mean, like, Ugh. my first purchase was an off-the-plan one bedroom in Bankstown. At the time, it was really all that I can afford, and it served its purpose. I mean, I bought it just before a boom, and during the boom, I pulled the equity, and I've purchased two more properties. You know, from that equity that I pulled you know, just because I purchased that property. But now that I've gone to sell, you know, there's an oversupply of one bedroom units in Bankstown. I bought off the plan. So, you know, eight years later, my purchase is no longer new. There's now better off the plan purchases and newer buildings you can buy into. And, you know, the purchaser that you're kind of gearing towards that's going to buy a one bedroom apartment is either an investor, you know, maybe a couple that's freshly moving out or a divorcee, for example. So, I mean, compared to a two-bedroom apartment, your options are a lot more limited because you can't fit a family in a one-bedroom apartment. No, definitely not. So, now going to sell, I mean, in hindsight, I could have probably, with the money at the time, I couldn't have done a lot more, but would I have waited potentially? Um, And I think that's one of the biggest reasons that my, you know, purchases have, or my tactic towards property has changed so much because... I'm now buying, trying to, you know, get growth and we'll talk about that. But yeah, like always make sure that you understand the risk because I think Sydney properties more than double. It's like up 150% over the last 10 years. Yeah. That doesn't apply to every single property in Sydney. It doesn't. There are a lot that, well, yeah, I I totally agree with you on that point. But it's also areas, right? Like Mm. different neighborhoods grow at different rates as well. And understand what, you know, maybe... And regional, urban... Yeah. You know, understand what you're buying it. in each market. Maybe, you know, a one-bedroom apartment in Bankstown doesn't perform, but a two- or three-bedroom does, or a house, or a town, whatever it is, does. So understand what oh, each point. different, you know, suburb, if you're looking in, say, I don't know, give me a suburb. Bankstown. Bankstown. <laughs> give me another. Lane Cove. Lane Cove, right? Find out what performs in that area and what does what kind of property does, does well. Is it two-bedroom units? Is it townhouses? Is it villas? Understand that. So Yeah. So basically what you're saying is it's a lot of work to get into property. No, I just think it's, you know, don't just rush into it. It There's a lot of research it sounds like you have to do and you have to learn about. I think just it's it's pretty easy. I mean, you jump on domain or realestate.com, all the data is sitting there for you. And I'll show you, you know, where you can learn this stuff. There's whole forums on it that tell you Mm. to a T what street to buy in interstate. Hmm, interesting. So there's so much research that's done for you and realestate.com will tell you the demographic of each area, the age group of each area, and you can work out pretty quickly if, you know, 80% of the people that live in Lane Cove are families. That's right. Families aren't going to live in a one-bedroom unit. Not a family. (laughs) Makes sense You're one guy, but you get me. Yeah, I absolutely understand what you're saying. I don't even know how many risks and benefits we've rattled off, but... Um, we maybe should conclude with probably the biggest one of them all that we haven't even touched oh, no, on. I'm scared now. What is it? We've missed. Um, how dare we? It's interest rates. Oh, okay. Property investing is only as profitable as interest rates right. are, to be fair. Um, because then you start moving your assets into different asset classes. Maybe it's ETFs, equities, digital assets, etc. Right. In a very high interest rate environment, I can't imagine the mortgage I have to pay if interest rates went from what they are now to 10%. Right. And I think that would be ridiculous. Yeah. I think my parents once said when they first bought, you know, newlywed their property, they bought like a um, terrace apartment in the inner West. Interest rates were at 17%. Yeah. That's crazy. That's insane. And I think, you know, the biggest thing as well, and it comes to don't over leverage and all the rest of it. Don't over borrow. But I think you also do need to remember, end of the day, Sydney property prices have increased so much. So don't just buy something based off a trend. Understand that to some degree, your rent needs to, or your yield on a property, which is why people turn to regional, it's probably sitting at around, you know, 3% in Sydney at the moment, which is fairly low. Yep. You go regional, you can get 6 7%. So if yep. rates increase, your buffer to pay off your repayments is a lot higher than if you buy in a Sydney market where 
your rent's quite low, but interest rates go up and your loan's quite big. Yep. Some people get into hot water. Exactly. And that's where you see the bus come. And I think as well, it's different generations, man. Like when our parents were purchasing property, they were maybe drawing down a $30,000 debt. Right. Even more at most $100,000, right? And if you're taking 10% or 20% even on a $100,000 debt, that's 20 grand. Whereas, you know, right now people leverage up millions of dollars to to buy a family home in, you know, metropolitan capital city. Mm. You're looking at a median house price of, you know, in a nice area. More than that, yeah. So you're borrowing at least a million, surely. Yeah. um, Unless you're loaded. But that's kind of the game's changed, you know, and if interest rates go up at this stage, I think there's way too many flow on effects. And this is more of a macroeconomic outlook. But I'm just saying it's, yeah, probably the biggest risk to your investment is interest rates. And I guess it's going to determine how profitable you are. Yeah. And I think, um, I guess on that as well, and we'll talk about this as in terms of a strategy to approach property in. Sometimes people don't want to put that, you know, buy that million dollar house and instead they'd rather buy, say, two houses for 500k each because it gives them more options. If right. they have to sell or... Um, so we'll speak about that later. And quickly, one more risk that we haven't actually talked about, that's yep. a pretty big one, is property management. Yeah. And I really want to stress this, um, especially when you buy in an area that's probably, you know, maybe the demographic isn't as good as, say, you know, your blue chip area in Sydney, but... Putting in a good property manager can make or break your experience with an investment. I bought interstate. I didn't know a lot at the time when I first purchased in terms of property managers that were good. Um, I took a recommendation from two other people that had bought in the same area. Um, And it got to the point my tenant actually wasn't paying rent for a bit. Okay. Um, And to get, I don't, you know, it's different in each state, but to get a tenant out who's, you know, not paying their rent, is quite complicated and time-consuming in, you know, the state that I purchased in. Um, Since then, you know, I've changed property managers and all the rest. They just weren't doing a good job. Um, I've changed and I've had no issues. But my biggest thing would be make sure that, you know, even if you're paying a higher percentage property management fee, make sure that you've got a good property manager on board that knows what they're doing, collects the rent every month, puts a good tenant in and makes sure that, you know, nothing's going wrong. Okay, absolutely. Cool. So we've kind of made it sound a lot worse than it actually is. We've rattled off a lot of risks, um, but also at the same time, if you really know how to invest properly uh, in property, it's a very, very attractive asset class to dip your toes into. Yeah. And we're here to help, obviously. Yeah, I think, you know, in the next kind of part two of this segment, we really want to talk about, you know, how you find a property to purchase, kind of what to look for, um, how do you know what's going to boom or what's going to perform better, and then also how we've approached this asset class um, and our kind of future endeavors. Absolutely. We'll catch you guys on the next one.